Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the Acast app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 18 in our series for 2019, and today's date is Friday, May the 31st. First, I talked to Adam O'Neill, the Managing Director of Ysoft, and he explains how companies need to change their print services to support the rising trends in the number of mobile employees. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And I'll be talking to RMIT economist Sinclair Davidson looking at what the economic challenges are for the newly elected Morrison government. But first, let's talk to Adam O'Neill. Uh, Adam O'Neill, uh, you've got a rising trend in the number of mobile employees uh, and, and remote employees, for that matter. How should companies change their print services to support the shift? Yeah, sure. I think it's probably... Um it's probably important for a lot of businesses to consider how your staff are working at the moment. And what I mean here is staff are increasingly bringing their own devices, their own technology to the office. So we're talking about whether they're traveling staff, uh, field first staff, such as sales or service personnel. Uh, We're seeing an increase in activity-based work environments where staff internally are moving from location to location. And all of those things sort of um, naturally 
direct stuff through to devices with greater battery life and you know something a little bit more mobile to carry so when a business looks at what to implement from a print strategy point of view i think they really need to look at how their staff are working and what their preference is the other thing that i guess they need to consider is what paper-based workflows does the or do the business or does excuse me does the business use at the moment uh there's sort of a I guess a, an idea in the market at the moment or an idea in business that print is rapidly reducing and we haven't really seen that. It is sort of a, general, a, a, a slight decline but certainly not to the level that people expect. So enabling the mobile workers with that paper-based workflow is, is really important. Uh, so much for the paperless office. Exactly. I think less paper is the future at this stage. Right, right. And of course uh, you need technologies that would allow employees to seamlessly and securely print uh, to the company's printer from anywhere in the world, from their, their own mobile device. Wouldn't that be the case? Yeah, absolutely. Look, it's, um, I think we're all fairly used to printing from a, a normal sort of laptop or desktop computer where you, you know, hit file, print, you open it up and you select whether you want it colour or double-sided and so on. With a mobile device, it's certainly much simpler for an end user in terms of submitting the job, uh, whether it's via AirPrint or Mopria, which is sort of the uh, Android version of AirPrint or email and so on. Uh, what we have to do is actually support the user by enabling that technology at the copier or the printer, letting them change color, letting them change double device. So essentially sort of replicating their existing workflow on a laptop, but on a mobile device. But there are a number of costs, aren't there, associated with printing, like ink, paper, servicing, uh, and, of course, you've got the human cost. I mean, how should companies address that? Uh, implementing a print management system is probably one of the, the key ways to reduce these costs combined with a print policy within the organisation. So for an organisation to sit down, uh, implement a print management system, so they get some metrics, they get some numbers on exactly how printing is occurring in their organisation, and then look at how best to reduce that with, you know, while still enabling their employees to stay productive. Uh, one way of doing that is assessing those reports, having a look at, you know, what we might deem as unnecessary printing, you know, printing emails in colour and, and that sort of thing, and then implementing a rule that will automatically enforce that and, say, change a colour email to black and white just to sort of help reduce costs and so on. So it's all about creating a more efficient system, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's an easy thing to implement. Uh, it's an easy thing to manage. The, probably the biggest... Um, element in any of this is change management, as it always is. You know, implementing new technology into an organisation just requires, as you said, addressing that human element and assisting them with that change. So what are the big challenges with that uh, addressing that human element? Uh, one of the big things when you implement a print management system, whether it's mobile workers or desktop workers, is really changing the process of file print and the paper coming out of the machine to file print and then being able to walk to any device uh, tap their door access card or something similar and have the print job come out. So the, the print job's certainly more secure. No one gets to see it apart from yourself. But it is a change in the way that people work and uh, that always has to be, I guess, addressed through education. Right, right. And so what sort of program would you suggest the company put, puts in place? What sort of education programs needed? Well, I think internal advertising, if you'd like, is, is certainly the way to go. So um, the systems these days are incredibly easy to use, such as our own Safe Gear 6, uh, there's not really a, a huge amount of education. It's certainly just, you know, fairly short training sessions and so on. Where it really comes down to is advising people why the change is occurring, um, you know, whether that is cost-driven or it's uh, environmental-driven, um, convenience-driven or a combination of all three. But I think that internal advertising on a business before making the change is the key to success in this area. 
Would that affect all companies, whether they have one central location or multiple, multiple offices around the globe? Yeah, that's one of the beauties of putting one of these solutions in, that uh, a user can print once, and once again, whether from a desktop or a mobile device, and then they can travel to any location anywhere in the world as long as it's on the same system and swipe their card and have the job come out. That also takes care of one of the things that I guess drive a lot of people crazy with printers is print queues. So if you do implement a system like this, you get a single print queue, you can travel anywhere in the world and just hit file print. So it sort of becomes a lot easier. It reduces you know, all the IT calls and certainly the frustration from end users. Right, right. And, uh, and if the issue is uh, you get print roaming, which would enable employers to automatically print on any printer on the network without any IT intervention. Exactly, yeah. So that uh, it really takes away that print queue management and, you know, searching for drivers and, and things like that. Um, yeah, just all, I guess, getting back to that that key or one of the key reasons you put these systems in, which is just to help with the productivity. Which would actually free up the IT help desk, wouldn't it? Exactly, yeah. You do see a fairly um, dramatic reduction in, in calls. On top of that, a lot of these systems, when you put them in, um, we put in sort of a highly available solution, meaning that if one server goes down in an organisation for some reason, you know, the power goes out in a data centre or something, everyone can keep printing. Um, so that, yet again, sort of reduces that uh, IT help desk uh, call situation. Now, the $64 question, though, is uh, what about security? I mean, that would be quite massive, particularly in larger companies that have uh, remote workforces all around the globe. Yeah, look, this has certainly been a consideration for a long time, but it's uh, obviously got a lot more attention with GDPR in Europe and mandatory breach uh, in Australia and so on. Uh, when we implement one of these solutions, it's actually possible now to secure a print job from the time that you hit file print or the time on a mobile device that you submit the job all the way through to when the paper comes out of the machine. So that gives that peace of mind, I guess, for an organisation. And then combine that with the reporting and the audit, uh, auditability, it certainly gives you a very secure solution. Right, right, right. So, so there's, no, there's no worries with security in that, in that case. Exactly, yeah, no, absolutely. Right, okay. Now, uh, the, another issue is that uh, a, a companies spend an enormous amount of time managing third-party solutions for their print services infrastructure. I mean, how big an issue is that? Uh, in terms of third-party solutions, sorry, Lena, I might get you to expand there. Well, uh, if you have third-party solutions, uh, you know, you, you have uh, employees... Uh, employees are needing to work with with other parties to uh, to develop their print solutions right okay so I guess when you implement a solution you know a print management solution one of the important things to look at is uh, that it runs across multiple vendors so that if you do have um, multiple solutions in place you know from different manufacturers and so on you get the same solution that can carry across all devices uh, with that as well I guess is getting back to that single print queue you know just having a solution in place that you can print to a single print queue and then release that uh, anywhere around the world on any manufacturer's equipment. Right, right. So uh, that, that, would, that would mean um, using uh, what, what sort of capture settings and optical character recognition and file name protocols and uh, secure digital workflow delivery around one area? Yeah. Like I, well, I guess that, that was on the print side. On the capture side, yeah, absolutely. So that's Probably one of the um, one of the other really important things at the moment when you're considering the mobile worker is not only getting the documents out, but certainly getting paper documents into a digitised form so that remote workers can access them. Uh, that's probably something that we've seen the greatest increase uh, in this scan workflow side of things, and it's something that we've built into our SafeQ6 products so that 
someone can scan a document and rather than have it go to email, which I'm sure we all do, you scan an email that sits in your inbox, you forget to sort of put it where it's supposed to be. Uh, that document goes directly to the document repository so that everyone can get access. And uh, once again, as you said, just making sure that that process is secure from end to end. Uh, now, how does all this work with the, uh, the BYOD solutions, which are becoming more and more prominent in the modern workplace? Yeah, look, it, it actually fits in perfectly with them. And we see, I sort of mentioned a few of the mobile workers before. One of the key ones, I guess, in, in this respect is contractors. So we're seeing an increase in contractors in um, work environments where the contractor may not have a login. Um, you may have guest users coming in and so on. And having a mobile print solution actually allows you to submit jobs, release jobs and so on, uh, and perform scans without actually having a network login, once again, with everything tracked. Which allows users to send a document uh, to a dedicated email address for printing, so you wouldn't need any print drivers or anything like that as a user workstation. Exactly right, yeah. And uh, wouldn't that actually, again, uh, release the burden on the IT department? It certainly does, yeah. Um, I don't have the percentage at hand, but the number of support calls for uh, IT workers regarding print was uh, fairly high, just off the top of my head. I think it was somewhere around 18% or higher, uh, which when you consider you know, how many calls are fielded, that's fairly significant. So anything we can do to reduce that obviously helps. So what, what do you see the future of print for companies with their mobile and remote workforces? How do you see this developing? Yeah, look, I, I think... Increasingly, it's a trend sort of continuing that started already, which is moving to a more managed style of printing. Uh, as print volumes decrease and as you know, people are sort of printing less and less, I think the information that we are printing is certainly probably becoming more important for a business. So yet again, I think just getting back to that, um, understand how staff need to print and how they, you know, what their workflows are, and then just making sure that the business plans to support them in that managed and secure way, I think will be very important. Well, Adam, thank you very much for your time, and uh, it's great knowing what Wysoft is doing. No problems. All right. Thanks very much, Liam. Thank you, Adam. And now let's talk to RMIT economist Sinclair Davidson. Well, Sinclair Davidson, the Morrison government's been re-elected. Now they have to find an agenda. <laughs> and uh, uh, one of the issues is the tax cuts, which is going to be held up in Parliament till June the 30th and won't come in till next year. Uh, and they had run very strongly on it coming in beforehand. What's your view about that? Um, well, I, I think in terms of uh, agenda, it's more or less the, uh, the same. More of the same, I, I, I imagine, is the story, um, because they didn't really tell much of a story during the election campaign, so they don't have much of a story to go on, uh, which which necess- isn't necessarily a problem. The tax cuts coming in, well, that's going to be interesting because – they announced the tax cuts or, or an increased tax cut, if that makes sense, um, in the, the the budget in April. Uh, we're supposed to come in on the 1st of July. And now there's a question of whether or not the, the opposition will support it. Because if the opposition clearly state they will support it in advance, the tax office will implement it. Um, and if they don't, they won't. So it's, it's, it's a bit of a no man's land at the moment as to where those tax cuts are. Um, I, I suspect, however, they will probably go through. Um, they are, they're actually aimed at low-income earners. I don't think anybody has a, a desire to collect more income from low-income earners. Uh, that said, the cross-alliance the cross and the uh, One Nation are opposed to the tax cuts. Uh, yes, they are. But, of course, the, the 
in, in any legislation that the government and the opposition support will will, will go through. So I imagine the, the, the opposition will support these particular tax cuts. They've got no reason not to, to actually do that. Although a lot of that will depend on the Labour Party leadership. Yes, it will. Yes, it will. Um, but uh, um, a decision will have to be taken long before the Labour Party leadership issue is resolved, and I would imagine all of them between them. So uh, uh, Mr. Shorten is still the, the leader until a new one comes in. I imagine he's got no reason to, to actually delay them or, or oppose them. And uh, um, I imagine I mean, there's a bit of kerfuffle over, uh, you know, over the next few days or so. I imagine there won't be too much of a problem of those actually going through. There are a whole lot of other issues, though, that uh, the government doesn't seem to have addressed properly. For example, we've got rising health insurance costs. We've got rising electricity costs, uh, rising costs of living expenses, yes. and uh, flat wages growth. And what can the government do to address those issues? Well, for the last, what, three odd years, the government have followed a muddling through approach to, to all of those issues, and I've got no doubt they will continue to muddle through. Uh, we will continue to see ad hoc sort of changes and adjustments there, because more or less on, on a lot of those issues, they don't actually really know what to do. So by muddling through, they're kind of hoping they'll go away, maybe wages will start rising by themselves, um, that they don't have to think about them too much. Of course, the, the electricity cost issue is a big one. At some point, they will have to do something there. Um, um, certainly, I think looking at the election results of last week, uh, there isn't much of an appetite in the electorate for carbon policies that lead to increased prices. So government will actually have that constraint on them, as, as will the opposition have that constraint on them. So it's definitely a muddling through, make it up as you go along, opportunism, uh, the kind of things we've seen over the last three years. So business as usual uh, with the re-elected government. No, and no big changes there? I would be very surprised if there's any big changes there. Uh, Malcolm Turnbull's leadership got destroyed twice on this particular policy. It destroyed Miss Gillard's government. Um, I, I think certainly carbon policy and those sorts of issues are, are a red-hot issue for the electorate and they don't like what they see. Arthur Sinodinus on the Saturday night of the election was canvassing the prospect of a government yes. post-Abbott Yes, yeah, yes, you down this direction of addressing carbon policy uh, and perhaps re, re bringing, bringing back the energy. Um, I, I, I suspect he was also talking to his own colleagues. Um, I, I, as I say, I, I don't see there's an appetite for that sort of thing. Um, it wasn't just Mr. Abbott, um, who's now out of the parliament. Um, I, I, th- I think there is br- widespread distrust, dislike. Um, amongst the electorate itself on, on, on those particular issues. So I think we, uh, the, 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 the political elites would have to come up with a coherent, understandable story and actually sell that to the electorate before anything can actually move in that particular space. Right, okay. So you don't see that any, any of that happening at all, despite what Mr. Sinodinus is yeah, doing? Yes, yes. I, I don't see that because simply the, the electorate actually uh, um, don't like the idea. And, and politicians are going to try and avoid it and sort of work around it, muddle through. Um, but, but even the, the, the Turnbull's energy, which I think in the end was, was a reasonable policy, um, didn't go down well in the party room at all. The other issue is, of course, the surplus for uh, next year. And uh, we don't actually know 
whether it will be with all the uh, spending that the government plans to be doing because it's going to leave a massive hole in the budget. Yes, I, I think the, the, the surplus is going to be one to watch. Um, if the economy does slow down, as, as, say, the Reserve Bank are suspecting, if consumer spending does slow down, if, if wage growth doesn't pick up, uh, that surplus is looking a bit fragile. On the other hand, I, I think the government have got a very strong, clear imperative to deliver that surplus, and I suspect the way they will do it is by borrowing and trying to keep the money off the, the budget bottom line. So they will tell some sort of story that there is a, an accounting surplus and not necessarily a cash underlying surplus. By borrowing, which would mean increasing debt. Yes, 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 yes. So simply pushing the, the, the debt burden out into the future. I mean, even since the budget, uh, the, the government have continued to borrow in the market. So um, th- there was certainly the sleight of hand that we saw in, in Mr. Frydenberg's speech, uh, whereby the debt would be p- paid down over a longer period of time. And if, you, and if you have a look at what they're spending money on, uh, infrastructure, roads, all that sort of stuff, and there they will tell a, a plausible, semi-plausible kind of story that this is all really investment. It's not recurrent spending. So, therefore, the budget really is in surplus when probably it really isn't. Um, but th- that's certainly going to be some t- something to watch. Uh, it's going to be interesting. I think the pressure is on to deliver any positive number uh, next year because, obviously, the, the opposition uh, would be in the hunt for any sign of economic weakness because th- that's, that's what the government ran on and won on uh, last week. But uh, the Reserve Bank and uh, economists' expectations are that the economy will be slowing down quite markedly. Yes, yes, yes. It is the the, the Reserve Bank have certainly come out and uh, came out with that expectation. But at the same time, Treasury and the Department of Finance in their PFO, the the pre-election uh, financial outlook, uh, painted a more positive picture. So right now, it's it's probably a case of forecasters don't really know what's going to happen in the future, and that's what we're seeing right now. Um, I think in terms of it's it's the Reserve Bank versus the Treasury. There's always a bit of tension there. Uh, time will, will will tell us who's right there. But uh, whatever happens, the, the government is under. The pre- under pressure to deliver any positive number next year. Uh, and uh, though we are expecting the Reserve Bank to cut interest rates twice this year, and that which will take rates down to 1%, yes. uh, which is an all-time low, what impact do you expect that would have on the economy? The, the challenge there is always you can't really push on a piece of string. Um, so, yes, you, you can make finance as cheap as you possibly like, but if people don't actually perceive there to be good investment opportunities, there aren't going to be good investment opportunities. So I, I went to a speech where the, the Reserve Bank governor spoke a couple of years ago now, and he was sort of bemoaning the fact that there were no animal spirits in the economy. And so if you, you, you can push the money down as much as you like. You actually have to have people out there prepared to take a risk, prepared to invest. And I think there's been a lot of uncertainty around the, the, the place the last few years. Um, I think even though it's a narrow victory, it was quite a decisive victory for the government uh, um, last week. So I I actually suspect we'll see a bit more confidence coming into the economy. Certainly the stock market reacted very positively yesterday. Um, So, you know, in in, in those sorts of senses, we, we might see some of the animal spirits coming back into the economy. But I'm I'm not a big fan of of, of saying, you know, we're all going to suddenly have heaps of investment simply because interest rates or official interest rates are down at 1%. I I don't quite buy that argument. That said, I mean, it was a decisive victory for the government, but in the end, the government's ended up with 77 seats. So 
Yes, yes. Um, hung parliaments don't actually worry me too much. It's, it's. I, I know people don't like the uncertainty and what have you, but at the same time, when you live in a democracy, um, you're going to have to live with the fact that half the population agree with you and the other half don't agree with you, and those numbers are reflected in the parliament. So um, it, it also forces, to a certain extent, the, the government to be more disciplined. It also forces the opposition to be a bit more disciplined. So big majorities are actually bad for policy. So a, a, a near hung parliament doesn't worry me too much uh, the the last government um, for most of their term I think was a, was a hung parliament too and, and they seem to manage um, but yes you, you've actually got to have a good story and actually go out and sell your story to the electorate um, that's certainly the, the the message we got we, we have a, a back to a majority government uh, they will still have to deal with a, a, a hung senate uh, which of course a, a lot of people sort of ignore the fact that you have to deal with uh, the only time we've had a majority Senate in the last 20-odd years was Howard's fourth term, and that didn't work out too well for him. No, indeed, indeed. So all up, you're saying the government will muddle on its way through the rising cost pressures? Yes. Uh, it will, as a matter of discipline, deliver on the surplus? Yes, yes. And, and and more or less, it'll be more of the same. Uh, well, well, what we've seen over the last few years, um, but to, also to be fair, I, th- I think Mr. Frydenberg is going to be a much much better treasurer than Scott Morrison was. Um, I, I always thought he was out of his depth as as a treasurer. Um, certainly, uh, he's grown in my estimation. I, I didn't expect him to win. Um, he did a fantastic job during the campaign. So in in that sense, he was very prime ministerial. Um, but I'm kind of hoping that he would sort of step aside and let the economic management side of things go to Mr. Frydenberg, who so far has done a fantastic job. Well, Sinclair Davidson, it's been delightful to talk to you. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. So what's happening in the news? Well, it was sold as a way to turn Britain into an economic powerhouse. But the only people benefiting from the Brexit vote so far seem to be Britain's direct competitors. New York has now steamed past London as the world's leading financial centre due to the full-blown crisis of Brexit, according to a survey of financial experts from around the world. Consultants Duff and Phelps released the results of its annual survey after speaking to 180 executives. Just over half of respondents now see New York as the world's top financial centre, which is up 10% from last year, while 36% see London as a leader after a 17% drop from 2018. And James Murdoch has signalled plans to have precisely zero involvement in his family's remaining businesses following the sales of 21st Century Fox and Sky in an historic split of the world's best-known media dynasty. The comments to friends inform a new book, The Battle for Sky, which chronicles the rise of Britain's dominant pay TV operator and the struggle of the Murdoch family to gain full control over it. The book describes how James, 46, and his father, Rupert Murdoch, now 88, quashed opposition from his elder brother Lachlan to break up and cash in a global entertainment empire built over three decades. Sky was sold to US cable giant Comcast in a £30 billion, that's $55 billion Aussie dollars, auction last October, while Disney acquired most of 21st Century Fox in a US $71 billion merger that changed the shape of Hollywood as it comes under attack from Netflix and other tech giants. The sales triggered a US $2 billion payday for each of the Murdoch children and are expected to trigger James' departure from the family business. 
He's made clear he opposes the populist politics of Fox News, which is now under Lachlan's control and the central aspect of a new Fox in which he plays no part. James is for now still on the board of News Corp publisher of The Sun, but is focused on Looper Systems, a new investment vehicle. And Fiat Chrysler Automobiles has submitted a proposal for a merger with Group Renault. According to a statement from Fiat Chrysler Automobiles, the combined business would be owned 50-50 between shareholders of FCA and Group Renault. A board of governors would hold a majority of independent directors. The joint organisation would produce estimated sales of 8.7 million vehicles a year and would be considered the world's third largest car manufacturer. Fiat Chrysler said the combined entity would be carried out as a merger transaction under a Dutch parent company. The press release from Fiat Chrysler added that there would be no plant closures as a result of a tie-up and the union should provide an opportunity to lead in the development of electric and, and autonomous vehicles. And Australians are confident following the federal election and anticipating a rate cut in June, with the ANZ Roy Morgan Consumer Confidence Index rising to 118.6 last week, leaving it at the highest level in little over a month. The index now sits comfortably above a series long-run average of 113.1. And Anthony Albanese has been warned by colleagues to hold the line against government's medium-term tax cuts as the incoming Labor leader puts his stamp on the job by offering to work with Prime Minister Scott Morrison on key policies to end conflict fatigue. Meanwhile, the Coalition has opened a dialogue with key Senate crossbenchers who have requested a briefing with Reserve Bank Governor Philip Lowe and Treasury Secretary Philip Gaetchen as they consider whether to support the government's entire $158 billion tax cuts package. Central Alliance's Rex Patrick and Sterling Griff could help the government pass the package without Labor support but will need to be reassured by regulators that there's a sufficient budget buffer to weather growing economic headwinds. Finance Minister Matthias Cormann called the South Australian crossbenchers this week, but Senator Patrick said negotiations had not moved beyond a holding pattern. Mr Albanese challenged Mr Morrison to recall Parliament before the 30th of June to pass the first tranche of the tax cuts package, which mostly benefits low and middle income earners. He pledged Labor support for that stage, while the later stages were up for discussion and debate. But there's concerted resistance within the party for a deal with the government. Outgoing Labor Senator Doug Cameron, who remains in the caucus, said it was crazy to be proposing tax cuts so far out when you don't know what the economy is going to look like. And the new Minister for Communications, Cyber Safety and the Arts, Paul Fletcher, says getting a return for the taxpayers' multi-billion dollar investment in the MBN is a key focus for the Morrison government. He's also flagged the rollout of 5G mobile infrastructure as critical in setting up Australian business to compete strongly on the global stage. At the end of June, the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission will hand the government the final report of its 18-month digital platform inquiry. The broadcast and production industries both want different changes to old content regimes, and the telcos are preparing for the rollout of 5G, which is expected to dra dramatically increase mobile speeds. Mr Fletcher told the Financial Review he was prepared for robust discussions with the telco industry over MBN pricing, having had much experience as an Optus executive in the early 2000s negotiating wholesale access to Telstra networks. Telco chief executives from Telstra's Andy Penn to TPG Telecom's David Teo have relentlessly attacked MBN wholesale pricing as not leaving enough margin for broadband services to be profitable for resellers. It will undoubtedly be one of the key issues telcos will continue to lobby on. Mr Fletcher replaces Mitch Fifield, 
who had served as Minister for Communication and Arts since 2015. And some of the world's largest investment banks face an Australian class action. According to a Sydney Morning Herald report, law firm Morris Blackburn have announced the action against UBS, Barclays, Citibank, JP Morgan and NatWest, which claims, according to the report, that chat rooms were allegedly used to manipulate financial rates through the sharing of confidential client information about upcoming orders and prices. This comes after investigations into rate fixing by regulators in the United Kingdom, the United States and Europe. And hackers stole customer data from Australian online graphic design platform Canva. The company which recently completed a $70 million funding round, valuing it at $2.5 billion, had data such as usernames, email addresses and passwords for millions of users taken. But since it is encrypted, it would reportedly be difficult for the hackers to sell the information piecemeal on the dark web. Subscribers have been told to change their passwords. Canva is used by individuals and large companies to design logos and marketing materials. And Swedish private equity company EQT Infrastructure has bid to acquire 100% of telecommunications company Vocus Group at a substantial premium. The $3.3 billion or $5.25 per share offer represents a 35% premium on the $2.4 billion company's Friday closing price share of $3.89. EQT has been granted non-exclusive access to Vocus's books in a process that the company said could take several weeks. Investment bank UBS and law firm Allens are advising Vocus on the potential deal. And Commonwealth Bank Chief Executive Matt Komen has vowed to embrace a new mindset by fixing mistakes faster and overhauling the customer experience of banking by slashing fees. In his first major speech as CBA's boss, Mr Komen, who's been in the top job for just over a year, has told a business lunch that restoring community trust will require more action that puts customers first. As each of the major banks grapples with how to repair reputations battered by the Hay and Royal Commission, Mr Coman said that Commonwealth Bank will be embracing a new mindset where we are listening and hearing more, owning mistakes and fixing them faster, putting customers first and harnessing the full potential of our people and our technology to make a meaningful difference in our customers' lives. The process of repairing trust will also require banks to forego hundreds of millions of dollars in profits. Mr Komen pointed to CBA's decision to forego $450 million in annual feed revenue after it decided to notify customers about how to avoid late payment or overdrawn fees as an example of how to provide better service. His speech to the Trans-Tesman Business Circle has also been designed to inspire CBA staff amid rumours of bank closures and redundancies and a customer backlash after the Hain inquiry heard evidence of CBA's loose lending standards, poor administration processes and reliance on a conflicted broker network. Mr Komen urges troops to think about the principles that led to Commonwealth Bank's recreation in 1911, observing it was a loss of trust in the banking system at the end of the 19th century after many private banks collapsed in the 1890s, triggering a deep recession that crystallised CBA's core purpose to assist the economy to flourish by supporting businesses and all Australians. And Vodafone Hutchinson's Australia says its 5G network will be smaller, slower and worse than those of its competitors Telstra and Optus, unless it is allowed to merge with TPG in a document filed with the federal court. The statement of claim was the first shot fired in the company's legal challenge against the Australian Competition Consumer Commission's surprise decision this month to block the proposed $15 billion merger. Vodafone is a lead applicant in the claim, with TPG the second respondent. Now, Vodafone's central argument is that without the merger, 
it will not have access to TPG's radio spectrum and improved access to financial resources, limiting its ability to compete with Optus and Telstra, both of which have considerably more licensed spectrum. Now, the more spectrum a mobile operator has, the less likely it will suffer from congestion and the resulting slower speeds for customers. Vodafone also claims a ban on Huawei equipment in 5G networks will make the upgrade to 5G materially more costly and delay the rollout. Vodafone said the ACCC's decision would result in its 5G mobile network having a limited geographic range. And fast food giant Domino's Pizza's shares slumped to an almost four-year low over fears that slowing growth in sales and store rollouts will see it deliver lower-than-expected profits over the next two years. Morgan Stanley analyst Thomas Keirith cut his price target for the ASX-listed company's shares from $50 to $41 on Tuesday and sliced his recommendation to investors from overweight to equal weight. Domino's shares fell 6% to $38.26 by 11.30am on Tuesday, which is the lowest they've traded since September 2015. The shares were trading as high as $80 in 2016. Mr Kiris said that after 10 years of strong double-digit growth, Domino's Australian and New Zealand business was slowing. He said that was driven by the law of large numbers, competitors catching up with online capabilities, moderating same-source sales growth, and new product innovation that lacks a punch of that in prior periods. Same-source sales growth has slowed significantly in recent periods, reflecting very strong growth in prior periods, and it reaching its potential market share in Australia and New Zealand, Mr Kiris said in a note to clients. Domino's was unlikely to meet earnings guidance, Mr Kiris said. And Telstra has announced 6,000 redundancies and an additional $200 million in restructuring costs. Telstra brought forward the number of redundancies it expected to announce next financial year. The telecommunication giant's total restructuring costs for the 2019 financial year will now come in at $800 million. Costs which predominantly come from redundancy payments were non-cash and would not impact on the company's earnings guidance of between $8.7 billion and $9.4 billion. The actual costs are expected to be felt next financial year when the affected staff leave the company. Telstra said after the $800 million ascribed to this year, remaining restructuring costs would have to be in the vicinity of $350 million. Telstra expects to have announced a reduction of approximately 6,000 roles by the end of the financial year, the telco said in a statement to the Australian Stock Exchange. It earlier said it was going to cut its workforce by 8,000 workers over three years. Telstra also announced a non-cash impairment and write down the value of its legacy IT assets by around $500 million as a result of migrating customers onto a new IT platform. And that's it for this week. And next week, I'll be talking to Michelle Van Alten, who is a country manager of Australia and New Zealand for Adyen, a leading payments technology company that provides businesses with a single global platform to accept payments anywhere in the world. And I'll be talking to economist Nicholas Gruen about the way ahead for the Morrison government's plans for tax cuts post their shock election win. And of course, I'll be bringing you all the week's news. In the meantime, you can find me on Twitter at TalkingBizBiz, on Facebook and on LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Have a great week. Take care. Be good. And looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more 
and it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 